0: Hi everyone, this is Beige Republic. Many people still argue cancel culture is a myth, at least when it suits them. But Americans' appetite for publicly shaming ordinary people seems to have nearly surpassed even our obsession with celebrity voyeurism. The media circus devoted to the subject is still thrumming, and denying that people are scapegoated, fired, and otherwise ruined for wrongthink, even as we head into 2024, seems a bit rich. Well, someone has been keeping track. In their new book, Canceling of the American Mind, Greg Lukanoff and Ricky Schlott offer an account of how the phenomenon has accelerated over the past decade. In fact, it's happening at an historic scale. They trace the rise of cancel culture in our institutions and make a compelling argument as to why you should care. The First Amendment and case law are powerful bulwarks against censorship and authoritarianism but we have been betraying a culture of free speech, something that they argue requires maintenance. Lukianoff is a First Amendment attorney and president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE. Schlott is a Gen Z journalist and a former fellow with FIRE. Together, they offer an intergenerational take on the issue. As in 2015's The Coddling of the American Mind, which Lukianoff co-wrote with social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, Canceling zeroes in on a set of destructive, if well-meaning ideas that have had outsized impact, resulting in a toxic liberalism. They break down the rhetorical jujitsu that both the left and the right use to evade debate and silence dissent. And they offer hope for the future. I just wanted to say that I really... I really enjoyed reading this book. Uh, it's such an indispensable book for anyone who wants to understand the age that we're living in. It lays out the history of cancel culture, how we've rapidly been abandoning and betraying a culture of free speech, and why that's so consequential. And you look at cancel culture as a phenomenon originating in academia. and proliferating in various ways through society, showing how it's come to dominate our institutions. And what I really love about this book is that you combine different generational perspectives. Greg, you're a First Amendment lawyer. You've been working on free speech issues for more than two decades. And Ricky, you've come of age in an era that's really defined by these issues. Uh, So just to start, I'm wondering if you can tell our audience how you met and how this unique collaboration came about. Yeah, so
1: um, we met when I was uh, still at NYU. I was probably 20 at the time, and I had written an op ed um, about free speech on on campus or the lack of free speech on my campus at NYU. Um, and then shortly after, worked on an op-ed about whether the uh, my generation could be uncoddled by the pandemic, which so far, not so much. But I mean, yeah. holding out hope that perhaps things might change. Um, and in the process of writing that article, I reached out to Greg, and that's how we met. And pretty soon after that, we, we put together that we shared a lot of values, and um, certainly a classical liberalism and free speech were um, passion projects of both of ours. And so that kind of turned into a fellowship at FIRE, um, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, which I did for probably like six or seven months before we decided to collaborate on this book for um, which was originally going to be more of a following to a following to coddling of the American mind, but um, kind of morphed into this uh, cancel culture expose of ours.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and so I'd actually heard a fair amount about this, you know, brilliant young burgeoning journalist uh, named Ricky Schlott. And and there was like a lot of buzz about her actually at fire, you know, like Ryan, you know, for example, I probably didn't call him out by name, Ricky, but, you know, Ryan Weiss, who, you know, was kind of like, yeah, she's, she's something. Um, so what, so we talked on the phone about the idea for her uncoddling, you know, her generation, um, article, um, you know, was really impressed by her and, uh, so we offered her a, a, a fellowship at fire um, and she you know just proved to be you know incredibly uh, I, it was like I couldn't throw anything at her no matter you know I'm a, I'm a hyper specialized constitutional lawyer and I could throw her like really complicated stuff and she'd explain it you know more pithily and better than you know in 300 words than I could in 3,000. Um so definitely I thought we made a good team. And I mean it's partially cuz like I'm also a wild overwriter. Like so like it, hype makes fun of me for the same thing. Like I need someone to help boil me down and you know and and having a, as clear and lucid and smart of a writer as, as Ricky to work with really really helps. But um, as Ricky alluded to, originally, we were planning to do something that was much more a follow up to coddling the American mind. I mean, canceling is a follow up to coddling the American mind. And we, we do actually almost kind of expect the reader to have read it or at least understood some of the concepts that Height talks about um, in, the, in the opening. But instead of being focused more on the psychological, we focused on cancel culture, partially because as we were getting ready to write this, I just couldn't believe that there were still ideologues out there who were trying to say cancel culture is a hoax. It's just a right-wing plot. It, it doesn't, nothing uh, like it just didn't exist. And, um, and it was like, no, 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 no. I've been, I've been defending free speech on campus for 22 years now, guys. Like what happened since 2014 is unparalleled. Like they're going to be steady in a hundred years. Like you're talking about numbers of professors losing their jobs that, that, that have no meaningful comparison since the law was established between 57 and 70, Um, So I felt like we had to put this argument to rest uh, once and for all. And so, you know, Ricky and I got to uh, got to work on it. And I think we we made a I think we made a really great team. Interestingly, like I I think it's in some ways sort of like the technology that we relied on to write it. We did a lot of voice memos back and forth. We did a lot of like, you know, we'd start with dictation and then Ricky would take a look at it and (laughs) make it make more sense. Um, And uh, but, yeah, the 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 collaboration process, I think, was I've been extremely lucky with my two co-authors. Height was just a joy to work with. And so was Ricky.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I feel very fortunate as well. I loved reading it because it it fills in a lot of uh, blind spots for me in a way. I sort of missed some of this. I went to a very progressive liberal arts college and then I went to grad school in Europe. And even though it was already underway, the environment wasn't suffocating in the ways that it seems to be now. Mm -hmm. And I honestly can't imagine being a college stage person and having to deal with this. Where where Um, in Europe did you go to school? I went to the Institute of, uh, for Social Studies at the Hague in the Netherlands. Interesting. Now part of Erasmus, but you know they were very, they were very left, but they weren't. Uh, they didn't have that culture of of censorship at all. And then you know I went to Sarah Lawrence for undergrad. Actually, I think I think I remember hearing you talking about a teacher, a professor there who there was a cancellation attempt or something, and he was terrible a case. When was that? I'm curious.
2: Uh, I think that would have been 2017, 2018-ish.
0: Okay. And what happened? Maybe that's a good. If we can dive into that. Oh,
2: well, I, I think it's an amazing case, not not just because I I know the professor involved and he has since um joined the board of fire. Um, his name is Sam Abrams, and he's an amazing you know statistician um who you know has helped us uh, d- d- with our campus free speech ranking. Um, and, uh, but he wrote something in the New York Times, um, yeah. about how, uh, and I stress in the New York Times, because it was, it was something that I, sh- I didn't think should be the least bit controversial is that, um, according to the data, administrators tend to be even more uh, uh, monolithically to the left than the professorate. Um, I didn't expect this to be a big deal because it's pretty damn clear in the data um, that that's the case. And, it was, and that was clear before. And the additional digging that Sam um, uh, did indicated it was worse than, than we thought, but, um, but, but still kind of in line with what, what the assumptions were. And then suddenly students started getting really angry about this op-ed that he'd written on uh, uh, about administrators, and this really demonstrates something that I try to uh, like. Uh, I try to explain to people all the time in defending free speech at fire for twenty-two years. It's not that the, that the administrators used to be the bad actors for free speech on campus up until 2014 when the students took over for them and then they became the bad actors. A lot of what's really going on are administrators, um, you know, facilitating this stuff, encouraging shout downs, encouraging cancellations against professors that some of them don't like um and this was one of the most transparent examples of administrators clearly going to students and saying i know this wasn't about students at all but really you should be angry at this guy you know something something white supremacy something something you know like something to make them mad um and next thing you know they're vandalizing his door they're uh, th- and they're targeting him for being fired they actually took over the president's office at Sarah Lawrence, and by the way, th- these takeovers are kind of BS because, like, really, what what's happening? is that the university lets them take over. Sometimes campus ta- uh, presidential office takeovers are catered like they recently were at Harvard where the students taking over the president's office all got burritos. Um, so th- they're kind of a formal part of, of, of the system. And one of their demands was that Sam Abrams must be fired. Uh, fire got involved. Um, a lot of people came to his defense. It did sound like the university president wanted to get rid of him at one point. But um, since they've backed down, and now Sam is a very successful pr- professor at Sarah Lawrence. But talk about something that really, you know, a, a true statement on, on something directed at administrators, you know, suddenly students are, you know, demanding this person uh, be fired. It's just textbook cancel culture that shows um, how administrators are actually oftentimes kind of pulling the strings on these things.
0: Yeah, and there's, it's definitely become this, as it's become institutionalized, the the administrative functions and space has become bloated in in academia. You guys, yes. you do write about that in the book. I just wanted to go back to Ricky uh, quickly, though, and ask, as someone who did sort of come of age in this environment, yeah. which I was saying, like I really can't imagine um, a university experience like that. What was it mm-hmm. like for you? And what was kind of your evolution? Like, was, was there a certain incident or was there a process where you started to think that there's something wrong with this or this doesn't align with um, what I believe? Yeah. Um, for me, it goes back even further
1: than, than being on college campuses because I went to a boarding school, the Lawrenceville School in New Jersey. And in so many ways, I mean, it's right down the street from Princeton. And in and, and so many ways, it's just like a mini college and a lot of the same kind of ideologies creep down. Um, and a lot of the teachers are, are fresh out of education schools and stuff. And so I felt like by the time I arrived at NYU, I'd already kind of known what to expect. Um, in fact, like the, the moment that I realized that I dissent from the kind of prevailing viewpoint was my freshman year of high school when I was like 14 and not at all politically activated yet. Um, but they had us come in on Martin Luther King Jr. Day because it is a boarding school, and they want to—they don't want kids like going to New York City and screwing around on on long weekends. And they had us come in, and they separated us by race into different buildings. And I remember not being politically aware, but realizing that that is um, pretty much uh like just opposed to everything that I believe in terms of what a, a progress and and a more equal society looks like and that was my first moment of kind of doubting the environment around me that continued through high school to the point that when I arrived at NYU I was hiding books under my bed in freshman year just because I was afraid that people would see that I'm reading Thomas Sowell and jo- Jordan Peterson and things that you know I'm, I'm completely loud and proud about now um but I, I think by the time I got to NYU, I was just so primed that I was self-censoring, that I, I wasn't honest in my beliefs. And then the reason that I decided to speak out was just in the pandemic, having such a, a strange moment as a young person. It just made me decide, like, why, what, am I, what am I doing? I'm on this kind of, like, straight and narrow path towards a career that I wasn't super passionate about, um, just going to law school for the sake of it. Um, and so I just decided... I'll I'll throw my name out there and see what happens. And now here I am, but um, to your point, I I mean, it's been so ideologically oppressive for as long as I can really remember being like even vaguely mature thinker that it's just sort of all I knew. And um, it wasn't until I started reading for myself like classical liberal texts and John Stuart Mill Mm -hmm. that I realized that there's an alternative to that that I could fight for and advocate for. So that's kind of my context.
2: Yeah, and actually, there was something that really, I thought was just so well said by Ricky on one of these many interviews that we've done that really, I thought was so illuminating. You know, we our definition of cancel culture is the uptick of campaigns to get people fired, deplatformed, expelled, etc, or otherwise punished. For speech that would be protected under the First Amendment, and by that we mean, as an anal- as an analogy to public employee law, as a way of working at a great deal of common sense and um, and legal standards, but also not making the uh, definition too bloated, um, that began around 2014 and accelerated uh, in 2017, and actually really super accelerated in 2020. Yeah. Um, and the culture of fear and conformity that resulted um, that resulted from that. And Ricky, at one point, you know, kind of joked. So, like, well, it's kind of funny for me to think about it starting in 2014, though, because like, um, that seems to be when everybody else became aware of it. But I grew up with this stuff. Like, this is the way, you know, we were fighting it out um, in grade school, since as the first generation of uh, of of uh, to have, you know, social media in their pockets. And I want people to like pause and think about that for a second, because. So much of the uh, when you look at the history of cancel culture, it really does follow, unfortunately, um, Ricky's generation. Although Ricky always points out that the generation that hates cancel culture the most, according to statistics, is Gen Z, which makes perfect sense. Um, they also were people who were, you know, canceling each other in grade school, finding a new way to bully that actually was more like virtue bullying, being kind of like, "Oh, I'm the good person," and now I now I know a way to sort of assert, and I can do this on on, on social media. Um, and what this means is, and some of it like really developed on Tumblr as a way of sort of virtue signaling and also having feeling socially mm-hmm. superior to people by, by, by showing, you know, how you suffered, for example. Right. Um, and this has spread to the whole rest of the world. And that means that literally the whole rest of the world is arguing like junior high schoolers because like it, it was specialized in junior high school. It's a very junior high school way of arguing, you know, basically like I'm not a good dress for your environment. I'm going to call you a bad person. Um, I'm going to call you names. I'm going to imply that you're immoral or bad. Um, and That should never have, you know, that should have been uh, 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 educated out of uh, of that generation in high school, uh, let alone in in higher education. But instead, it's so effective at winning arguments without winning arguments. It's kind of, to a degree, taken over the world.
0: Yeah, I want to go back because, Greg, you do write in the book that you were aware starting around as far back as 1999 or 2000, when you were a newly minted first amendment lawyer and you experienced the shift in sentiment where people started to associate freedom of speech with hate speech or this skepticism of free speech. Uh, so I'm wondering if you can kind of take us through how it went from that. And you, you do identify also the first age, uh, an ignored period and this, I don't know if you call it the second great age. Yeah, the second great age, which is the explosion from about 2014 onward. But if you can kind of take us through the evolution of that in academia, where some of these ideas, you know, where you locate that they came from, and how this culture came about.
2: Sure, that's a that's a tall order. Um, I'll try not to take two hours (laughs) doing it. I can't explain it better than we did in the book. Um, but, you know, I call my blog or my Substack the eternally radical idea to really try to burn into people's heads that free speech is something you have to maintain. And in every generation, it's a radical idea because everybody is more inclined to censorship than they are to freedom of speech, um, whether uh, you have to be taught to understand and appreciate freedom of speech. In a way that nobody has to be taught to appreciate and understand censorship, that, that essentially like the idea that person said something horrible, I should beat the hell out of them, you know, like is, is an instinct that runs pretty deep. Um, or, or, or if you have that to say, then just don't say anything is something that does, you know, it, it, it's something that kids understand. Um, And it takes a lot of discipline to actually really start to be like, you know what, I'm not just going to tolerate that person. I'm going to listen to them. So uh, freedom of speech itself requires a lot of uh, of education and belief and uh, uh, um, uh, institutions to maintain it. And uh, so in some degrees, like a society regressing on free speech is to be expected. I call this a problem of progress that essentially as people get more comfortable, Um, They get less comfortable with conflict, and therefore, uh, free speech is the kind of thing that will get worse as other things are getting better. I wrote about this in a short book called Freedom From Speech in 2014. I called it problems of comfort uh, um, and freedom from speech. We called it problems of progress and canceling the American mind to basically say, I agree with Pinker, you know, Steve Pinker, that, that things are getting better in a lot of ways. But I do think there's categories of things that will get worse almost because other things are getting better. Now, that's the big sort of 30,000, 100,000 foot kind of view of it. But one thing that we want to be really clear about in the book is that some of this was very intentional. It, was, it wasn't just impersonal forces leading to a more um, uh, a, a, a increasingly once liberal and then increasingly kind of hard left kind of uh, administrative and professor uh, makeup in higher ed. Um, that, and that just naturally, because of that, when you're that politically homogenous, you don't appreciate freedom of speech. There are people who are pushing for um, enlightened censorship from the very beginning, uh, you know, uh, on the left. And you know, of course, Herbert Marcuse comes up a lot these days. He was a Marxist or post, depending on you think about it, post-Marxist thinker. I mean, he thought very much like a Marxist. He just thought uh, you know traditional Marxism clearly wasn't winning the American people. Um, and he wrote a, you know, a, a, a article called, um, repressive tolerance in 1965 and people, I don't get it why people actually treat this guy like he's, he's smart even because like the, the argument is that, um, we want to have a truly free and equal society and therefore to have a truly free and equal society, we need to repress the bad speech. Um, we need, we need to go after the regressive so-called right and the conservatives, they're very explicit. They're talking about the right wing, um, but which of course the Marcuse is, you know, 85% of the rest of the country. Um, And that we should have good people like me should have free speech, but you should not. Um, And it's like, okay, so you just kind of like summed up the the most basic kind of dictatorial justification for censorship that goes that's as old as civilization and people are lauding you for it. Um, But this was treated somehow like it was sophisticated thinking. And even though it was kind of dismissed off campus, on campus that actually had a lot of purchase. And then you start having people like um, Richard Delgado and the founders of, Cogni- uh, of um, uh, critical race theory advocating. Well, and the thing that people always have to remember is even though we'll defend the right to teach CRT, because we, we at FIRE we defend the right to teach anything, um, CRT should always be remembered as the when the, that group of scholars first got together, the very first thing they did was went after free speech. The, they justified hate speech codes, they justified limitations on on freedom of speech um, at, that should be practiced by, uh, by, by campuses. People like Richard Delgado actually authored some of the speech codes that came around in the 80s. So free speech uh, movement in Berkeley in 1964, by 1974, a tremendous progress in the Supreme Court for student and professor of free speech rights. Um, like re- really uh, became their their strongest in '73, and then um, by 1984, right, 1985, u- universities are passing uh, speech codes all over all over the place. So these got defeated in court. They were laughed at in the court of public opinion. Um, students and faculties started getting less enamored with them, and everybody thought things were kind of fine by 1995. Political correctness was a joke. We're all going to be fine. It's just a cycle. Um, then 20 years pass, and I worked at FIRE for most of those, kind of sounding the alarm like, guys, actually things are not great. There are more speech codes now than there were even back then, believe it or not, and some of them are identical to the ones that have been defeated in, uh, in court. Um, the administrators are carrying on this anti-free speech ideology, and they're growing a number by the year. Um, and it's and it's getting worse. And people only really started becoming aware of how much worse it's gotten around 2014 when you actually have that first influx of students hitting campus that are so much worse on freedom of speech, which was not you know, something that the public really noticed. So that, that's kind of the progression. And it's important to remember that some of this is very intentional, that, that there's been a, a a very self-conscious effort to turn free speech from being the traditional sort of liberal value and traditional or a left wing value into something that it absolutely isn't. Um, Richard Delgado says this very explicitly, you know, like the idea of, you know, we don't, this shouldn't be, you know, a lefty value. This is, you know, I remember I debated him once and it was not very impressive. Um, you know, making the argument that, Oh yeah, well the ACLU gets money from porn, you know, like basically all of the, and, and um, Making the argument that free speech is why we ended up with Hitler without pointing out that, you know, Nazis actually went to jail for saying offensive things about Jews in, in, in the 1930s. He didn't even seem to like know that part. Um, so there has been a concerted effort to turn free speech from being a, a, like a, a dominant left wing value to being the exact opposite of it. And unfortunately, I think it's been, at least with some segments of the left, extremely successful.
0: Yeah. <laughs> It's so useful to have a book like this that puts it all into context. You have many case studies, but to have this this very clear definition, you know, looking at the relation of culture to law and how we have a very robust, you know, First Amendment. We're very lucky here in the US, but that's that's really not enough The you know, when the culture of free speech is degraded to such an extent. um, And these cultural norms, as you point out, can change so quickly. It's it's very alarming. Was there a reason why 2014 was such a turning point, do you think?
2: Well, that's one of those ones where where I, I feel like it's better answered in Coddling the American Mind. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we didn't want to belabor the point too much. But um, so Coddling the American Mind offers six different theories on what was so different about the students hitting uh, uh, hitting campus on 2014. Right. You know, we give uh, the, the six are, you know, Social uh, social media, um, which we'll come back to, political polarization, um, which you know play into each other, uh, paranoid parenting, lack of free play um, among the kind of students who go to particularly elite colleges, um, was the surprising one for us, but definitely uh, we think plays a role. And then, kind of like why campuses hyper bureaucratization, and then of course we come to the final one, uh, which is uh, ideology. Like, kind of what I go so far to say is our bad ideological, like rigid. Um, know, a lot of cases, kind of like, like neo Marxist kind of ideas about social justice. That's a that's a zero uh, zero sum game. So. Uh, but really, the, the reason why 2014 more than anything else is that this is the first generation. This is when Gen Z hits higher education, and they were the ones who started getting you know cell phones and social media in their pockets. You know, in 20, 2008, 2009, and by 2010, 2011, they had a um, like a, a critical mass of students. Actually, it was just taken for granted that everybody had them. But I mean, when did when did you first get your first phone, Ricky?
1: I was, my mom's going to kill me. She says that I make her sound like such a bad mom and she wasn't, she was so protective and was, did everything right. We just didn't know how bad it was. Um, I was 10 and then I was on Instagram by 11. Um, sorry, mom, I turned out fine. I'm okay. (laughs) But I've, 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 um, not heard the end of it. Uh, the critiques of, of having brought that up too many times. But, um, no, I, but I also think that there's, there's something to giving kids dumb phones at that point in time, for sure, especially because I was going out on my own more um, solo. But I was uh, very much online and also an only child, which I think made it even worse.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting. Because, in naming this and in analyzing it you you give us something you give this um this bigger picture, which we can kind of latch on to because I remember having conversations early on saying, "You know, I think this is going to have an outsize effect that's unintended, and I think it's a very um, bad sign uh this this sensorial culture and this kind of glee that people are taking um." Uh, in this very performative public punishment of other people and you know i had friends who would say it's not i would say the word cancel called the phrase cancel culture and they'd say it's not cancel culture it's accountability culture <laughs> and of course this is um you break down how how both the left and the right skirt having actual conversations and arguments and you call it the on the left it's the perfect perfect rhetorical fortress and this is part of it another part that i hear a lot is well, you're just talking about a fringe phenomenon. This is the so-called radical left, which I would have considered myself part of. But it's not because these are ideas that that maybe originated in what one would call the radical left, but now dominate liberal institutions. So it, to be able to track that and name it, I feel like it's so important for people to to understand it, to have these discussions and to overcome this period in which I feel a lot of people have felt lost or or you know knowing something is wrong and understanding that this culture is toxic but really not knowing how to talk about it you know especially because there, there's mm. still so much fear people don't don't want to speak out um, maybe you can actually speak to that why do powerful people still not speak out in both in academia and in other institutions
2: I, I, yeah Ricky okay, I was you go
0: No,
1: go go for it. I'll
2: I'll follow up after. Why do I think they don't speak up? It's been, it's been frustrating. Like I've, like I've done uh, uh, podcasts, you know, I've I've done more sort of center left and center right ones. I've done, I've done a couple um, more left leaning ones and there's a stubborn refusal to admit that there's something wrong on our side. Um, that it can be absolutely maddening, because it's like, I point out, you know, because we, we have three chapters, you know, on cancel culture from the right. I think we have like, but most of the book is about cancel culture largely comes from the left. And that's appropriate because we're we're actually not engaged in some simple minded both siderism where we where where we want to pretend that both sides are equally guilty of it because it's not true like that that would be inaccurate to say that particularly in higher education particularly in the corporate world um, and uh, the the place where we call it out a little bit more um, you know are in legislatures for example. Um, uh, but I do also have to remind people that, you know, yes, there was a really foolish law that was passed in Florida called um, the Stop Woke Act. And we warned the university, uh, we warned the state of Florida from passing it. We said it's laughably unconstitutional. Don't pass this thing because it was actually banning pretty much ideas, you know, from, from, from the classroom. They actually had to go into court and make the argument with a straight face that, well, yes, under this law, you could argue against affirmative action as a professor, but you couldn't argue for it. And it's like, no, I'm sorry, you just lost, like that—that like uh, that is called viewpoint discrimination, that you don't stand a chance of, 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 of litigating that. Um, and we fought it in court, so did the ACLU, we fire, we defeated it so far, it's on appeal, I think we'll defeat it again, because it is really clearly unconstitutional and, and the judge was kind of take, aghast at it. But the, But again, I think listeners sometimes would be surprised to realize no there 's been one um law to that effect, but if you look at the the discussion about you know particularly from some of the critics on the on the left there 's this you know uh, overarching McCarthyism attack on higher education uh right now without rec- without even acknowledging the fact that the one law that at least for now is overturned you know par- partially by um but as long as anything kind of exists on the right to point to, and there, of course, there's, and that's going to happen, they don't have to admit that anything's wrong on the left. And it's really frustrating because I think that if you look at when you look at the polling, you know, people on, on the left above a certain age are still really great on freedom of speech. Unfortunately, it's mm-hmm. more like forty-five up, and and to, to a lesser degree, thirty. Uh, you know, age thirty and down, millennials are kind of possibly kind of a lost cause. <laughs> um, but we the, And the thing is, by be, being so frustrated by things going on on the right, I can't fix the right. You know, um, you know I, I, the right has to fix the right. The left can fix itself, but it can't just pretend that the problem is always, is strictly on the other side because that's just, I feel like they know in their hearts that's not true. What, what do you think, Ricky?
1: Yeah, I was also gonna add um, just on the front of what you were saying about people feeling like there's something wrong but that they're, they are they don't know what to do about it. I've, so often that statistic that Greg cited earlier about Gen Z being the most negative on cancel culture tends to surprise people because they feel like obviously we're talking about Gen Z arriving on campus and then cancel culture explodes. But I think the, the, the pervasive thing that I've noticed is that there is, especially in a younger generation that doesn't remember a time when, when free speech values were front and center or even like, vaguely celebrated in our institutions, that there's there's this sense that something's totally wrong and that cancel culture is not a culture that it's you know hospitable, even vaguely, to be a young person in. There's a sense that, that everything's off kilter and that there should be a solution. But the problem is that nobody knows what it is in Gen Z because we've not been taught it. So I think that the statistic is, it at first, surprised me that we had the most negative view. But then I think about my own kind of anecdotal experience at NYU and speaking out myself, um, publicly and seeing how many people around me that I would have I passed in hallways and that I knew from classes felt similarly and also thought that there was an issue with free speech on campus, but like we just didn't have the vocabulary or, or the courage to speak out about it. So um, I would say that, I mean, especially for young people and why there's a fear of speaking out, it's because a, we don't really know what, what positions we're championing and what classical liberalism is and, and that there is, a whole body of of uh, of writing and, and a whole body of law behind us, if we actually want to advocate for free speech. Um, but also, secondly, because the culture of conformity is just like self just self perpetuating, and especially as a young person, it's just so hard to, to break out of that.
2: You've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.